Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. We read verse 5 down to verse 10. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard, in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God, and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Tonight I want to speak to you about our perfect and our fit high priest. I especially would highlight verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Here is one who is described as being made perfect. And that, of course, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author of salvation. And being made perfect, he has become that fit author of salvation. The only source of salvation. The only redeemer of God's elect. And it's not an ordinary salvation. The text shows you that. It's the author of eternal salvation. So we're not talking about bodily deliverances, we're not talking about deliverances in providence, we're not talking about being helped out of problems in life, we're talking about the salvation that leads to a man being with God forever and ever, that great salvation. It's not a universal salvation either, because it says the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And it's very clear that not everybody obeys the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore this salvation is not universal. It's only for the believers and those who trust and follow Jesus. And it is to all of them. The author of eternal salvation unto all of them that obey him. So that not one of them is lost. And they're saved forever and ever. And while I highlight verse 9, I do also point out that it is enclosed by a common expression. You have it there in verse 6. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's on one side of this. And then on the other side in verse 10 you have an high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so this encloses this author of salvation, this fit redeemer. He is a fit redeemer because he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's important. In this epistle to the Hebrews, the apostle teaches us that our Savior is only a perfect Savior 
Because he is a high priest. A high priest in glory. A high priest at the right hand of God. A high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And it's on that basis. That he is able to save to the uttermost. All that come unto God by him. Because he is this high priest. Forever. After the order of Melchizedek. And that's the word that I emphasize. A high priest forever. The eternal salvation. And so Paul wants us to know that Christ's priesthood then. We've already seen this. It's not after the order of Aaron. It's after the order of Melchizedek. There's something about Melchizedek that sets forth the glory of Christ's priestly office. Melchizedek, of course, was a priest before Aaron. He was a priest before the Levitical priesthood. A priest who, in actual fact, was a king priest that we first read about in Genesis chapter 14. A mysterious character who just comes on the scene, appears for a few moments, and disappears off the scene again. And that's the end of him until Psalm 110. A mysterious priest who's for a little while visible and then becomes invisible, out of sight. And the next we read about him is, he is as one who is at the right hand of God. And so Christ's priesthood is after that order. Because Christ's priesthood is not a highly visible priesthood. It's in the heavens, it's unseen, it's in the sanctuary. Because Christ's priesthood is not just merely a a priesthood, it's a kingly priesthood. Aaron was no king, but Christ is a king priest. Aaron's priesthood, it's among men, it's always visible, going on and on, repeating again and again, the same offerings that can never make people perfect. But Christ is a a once for all, a finished priestly work on earth, and now sitting, reigning and glorified in heaven. So not after Aaron the highly visible, the repetitive, the timeless, continuing here below, the never finished, the never complete, the never ceasing repetition, not after Aaron, but after Melchizedek. Who appears for a little while and disappears. This mysterious person whose genealogy we do not read anything about. We don't know his roots. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know where he went to. He's mysterious. Made like unto the Son of God. Without father or mother. Without descent. A king priest. And so Jesus Christ is after that order. We might wonder why Paul brings this up, this mysterious person in Genesis 14. That's because of his text, Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, we read there, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's Christ. The Lord is speaking to Christ, and he's saying, You sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And now when he sitteth there, when he's actually in place there, The same Lord says to him, I've sworn, I've made an oath, you are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. He doesn't say after Aaron. After the order of Melchizedek, that's the kind of priest you are, my son. 
And that's why Paul bringing it in here. Not after Aaron. After Melchizedek. He says it twice. And he encloses this. A perfect, a fit author of, of eternal salvation. Because the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now when it says in verse 9, being made perfect. We have to carefully explain that. Because it doesn't imply that the Lord Jesus was imperfect. And whenever we talk about sinners being made perfect, uh, it implies, of course, that we are not perfect. We're sinners and we have to be made perfect. Uh, This doesn't mean that Jesus was a sinner. It doesn't mean that Jesus was somehow imperfect. But it means that he is now a complete saviour. A fit saviour. For us great sinners. We have such sin. We have need of such a great saviour. And Jesus is that one who has been made that perfect saviour. He's been made a complete saviour. In other words. It's not enough for John chapter 1 verse 1 to be true in itself. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. That's the perfect son of God. But that does not make him a saviour in itself. He has to come into the world. He has to take a humanity. He has to be incarnate. He has to live a righteous life. He has to die and suffer and rise again from the dead and ascend to glory in his humanity. He has to be made a saviour. He has to be fitted out to be our saviour. In his incarnation and suffering and death. It's not enough that he just be the son of God. The son must become high priest for us. The son must become high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He must be fitted. And he is fitted. And he's a perfect redeemer tonight at the right hand of God. I want to state three ways how that Christ is a perfect high priest able to save us. I want to leave them with you these three thoughts tonight. First of all, he's a perfect, fitted high priest able to save to the uttermost because he is the Son of God. Do you see what it says there in verse 5? Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son. Today have I begotten thee. Now this is foundational. This is first. If this is not true of Christ, nothing else matters. He must be the son of God. He must have an eternal relationship with the father. He must be God the son who becomes incarnate in the flesh. John 3 verse 16 is foundational. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent his son into the world. He's a son before he becomes incarnate. Before he becomes a man. Because he is the eternal son. He's not a mad son. He's not an adopted son. He wasn't mad as son when he became a priest. He wasn't mad as son when he was incarnate. No, he was 
ever a son, the eternal son of the eternal father. You notice what the text says, thou art my son. Not you're now my son, not you're going to become my son, not you're my son now because you sit on the right hand of me. No, this is what he is. Thou art my son. So let us be assured that the sonship did not start at the first advent. Nor did it start at the baptism of Christ, as some say. Nor did it start at the cross. Nor did it start at the resurrection, as some assert. Nor even at the right hand of God. It did not start when God said, Today have I begotten thee. Today is a word of time. It's not a word of eternity. Christ was the eternal Son of God. Thou art my Son. Today have I begotten thee. And this beginning is not a beginning him to be the Son. It's a beginning from the dead. He's the first begotten from the dead. It's talking of the resurrection day. It's talking of the beginning of his glory. It's talking about the ascent onto the right hand of God. Today have I begotten thee. But before that beginning, thou art my son. That's an eternal relationship. That exists before his humanity. It was the son that was made flesh. So this beginning, quotation from Psalm 2, is a beginning from the resurrection of the dead and Christ's glorification. His kingship and high priesthood at the right hand of God, the first begotten from the dead, all his people to follow him in time today. That's a very important word in, in the epistle to the Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. This day of the glorification of Christ, this day of his reign at the right hand of God, this day of the manifestation of his begottenness to the glory He glorified not himself, but the Father glorified him, saying, Today I have begotten thee. So so we have to distinguish here, he has an eternal sonship, and this being begotten has nothing to do with that eternal sonship. He has an eternal beginning, the only begotten of the Father, but there, there are two ways, there are two begottens here that we have to distinguish in our mind. And this priesthood, this perfection of salvation that he possesses is because he is the son of God. There can't be any salvation apart from that. God must save us. And the son possesses that divine nature. Should he never have come into the world, that would be true. He was the son of God. He's the only begotten son in the bosom of the father, whether he come into the world or not. But to be our high priest that we need, the Son of God has to come into the world. And he did. And this is what makes him great high priest, able to see it because he's the Son of God who came into the world. So he's not from among men. This is what Paul is saying here. Aaron, from among men, merely human, merely flesh, Only flesh, but not Christ. 
Not from among men. From among God. From heaven. Thou art my son. The son of God. And that's what it says there. In our text. In verse 8. Though he were a son. And this is the mystery. Though he were a son. The eternal son of God. Yet. He learned obedience. He experienced submission. He experienced obeying God. Even though he was a son. The son of God he obeyed. And he experienced submission to the father in his humanity. Though he were a son. This is a mystery. But it is his divine sonship. So he is from among God, as it were, the bosom son. That's where he come from. He come from the bosom of the father. Whereas Aaron and all the other high priests, they merely come from men by ordinary descent and ordinary generation, human generation. So that's the first thing. And if that were not true of Christ, this eternal sonship, we could never have a fit saviour. Only God can be a saviour for us. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is that God. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our saviour, Jesus Christ. He can only be our saviour as God. To the only wise God, our saviour, be glory and honour. So he can only be the author of eternal salvation as God. The Son of God. So that, that's the very foundation of his fitness. That's why Aaron's not fit. That's why any earthly priest is not fit. They are totally and completely and absolutely human. Only human. Only among men. Whereas Christ has come from heaven. As the one sent by God. To close the gulf between God and man. It's only the Son of God who can do that to close that gulf. Aaron could not close that gulf because he's not the Son of God. Only Christ can do that. And Christ has done that. And in doing that, he alone has become the perfect, the only fit saviour of sinners. And so if, if any of mankind are to be redeemed, they're only to be redeemed by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If he hadn't come into the world, the story would have ended there. We'd just be like the demons and the devils. We'd just straight for Gehenna. Not only would Gehenna have been made for the devil and his angels, it would have been made for the devil and his angels and the whole human race if it wasn't for the Son of God coming into the world. So that's, that's the story. The wonderful story of the Gospel. The Word was made flesh. And God, his son, was sent and he came in flesh for us. So that's the first thing. He is the eternal son of God, therefore a fit and perfect redeemer. And then secondly, he is fit because he had days of his flesh on earth. He had an appearing. He had a manifestation on the earth for a time. To do earthly work. And that's very important. He had to be made perfect. Partly on earth. And so we read here in verse 7. 
and 8, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, those two verses, there's far too much here for just to put into a second point, but, but I do want to stress that the apostle here is picturing Christ in the most acute aspect of his sufferings. I think particularly we have a description of him here in Gethsemane. That's why I read the account in Gethsemane. There's an account here of prayers, supplications, strong crying, tears, a heavy burden, sore sorrow, praying about deliverance out of death unto God his Father. He experienced obedience. He experienced having to trust his Father. He learned obedience. This is what the Apostle is saying here. And I think that those commentators are right who say, this is the description of Gethsemane in the main. Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion. Now not that that's the only thing in the mind of the Apostle, but it is the main thing. The crying before Gethsemane. The strong crying. The tears. Now, of course, there was that of Calvary too, wasn't there? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I thirst. There was strong crying there too. There were tears there as well. And there were many occasions when Jesus wept and he he prayed strongly and cried uh, heavily unto his Father. But I do think that we have to write Gethsemane in the main beside these verses. Now, when you read the Gethsemane accounts, this then is Paul's commentary upon it. But why does he go to Gethsemane? Why did you not go to the cross? The crying on the cross. Why did you not go to Calvary directly? And the agony there. And the answer is because the cross commenced at Gethsemane. That was the first rung of the ladder. The cross has its shadow over Gethsemane. And the ascent to the cross commenced there at Gethsemane. There's something about his being made perfect that is largely attributed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the way the Lord prayed here, it's a great mystery. But he was learning obedience. He was experiencing something of what it is to submit to his Father. Which is a very important part of the sacrifice. Because a sacrifice is giving yourself. It's submitting yourself to God. And he had all of that. He did all of that. He experienced all of that. You know there's more to sacrifice and substitutionary work. Than just shedding your blood. There's far more to it than that. That blood is the culmination. Of a perfect giving of himself to the Father. For sinners. And it's particularly starting here at Gethsemane when he began to be sore amazed, when he began to be very heavy, when his soul became exceeding sorrowful unto death. The weight was, as it were, pressing down on him. It seemed to be nearly killing him in the garden. This load of sin that he felt then so acutely as he went as the lamb, the sin bearer to the cross. 
And it's recorded by Matthew and Luke, as well as Mark, the Mark account we read. And whenever you realise that what's going on there in Gethsemane, you have to think, this is a great mystery. And in some sense, Gethsemane is, seems nearly greater and heavier on the Lord than the cross. On the cross, he didn't seem to have that. He seemed to be at rest more on the cross. He seemed to have been committed, as it were, and the victory was obtained in Gethsemane. And so after Gethsemane, Jesus seems to have peace, peace, perfect peace. It's like Isaiah 26 is fulfilled in his life. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And that's what's happening in Gethsemane. The load, the, the thought of the wrath of God coming to him. The thought of bearing sin, that ugly sin, all that iniquity of his people that he has to burn to carry. That, that's an awful thing to someone who has a pure, sinless conscience. And we're thinking about the aspects of his humanity as he has to face this. And the Lord had to get the victory for himself before he could go to the cross and get the victory for us. And so this is why Paul is starting at Gethsemane. There's something there as he intercedes, as he bears this weight, as he deals with the Father, as he submits to the Father's will, even though it's so difficult to his humanity. He gets the victory. He learned obedience. Now there are those, and I have to disagree with them, who say Satan is trying to kill him in Gethsemane. I think they're simply wrong. With all due respect to those who differ on this, Christ, I do not think, is crying and weeping sorely under the shadow of Satan. It's not about that. Satan held no such power over Christ. Christ is under the dreadful aspect of Calvary. And facing the awesome responsibility of being made sin. Now there are some theologians who don't like that description of Paul. They, they water it down, they, they change it all around. Paul says he was made sin for us. That's what he says. And why we can't explain it, why we can't understand it, that's what's happening. And that being made sin for us in all its dreadful awfulness is why he is thus learning obedience in Gethsemane. It's a mystery, I know. So Paul is bringing this out and bringing us to Calvary just to show us how fit a saviour he is. A perfect, a complete saviour. A one who has gone through it all in all its ugly depths. To redeem us and to save us. And so five things are, are true then in these verses. He, he had to have days of flesh. He had to have humanity. He had to become a man. had to experience what it's like to suffer as a man. He had to suffer as a man. The suffering is mentioned here. Learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So he had to suffer. He had to have the humanity that suffered. He had to obey God. He had to experience what it is to obey it wasn't just head th th thinking as, as the omniscient God what obedience is. No, he had to experience it in his humanity. He had to be obedient as the word made flesh. And he was. He obeyed his righteousness. This is all part of our salvation. And then he had to perfectly trust and submit to God, to, to the will of God. Even when 
It was so horrid and so difficult. He submitted and he was heard because he feared God. So he had this godliness, this godly fear, this obedience. And then he had to die. When it says there, he prayed unto him that was able to save him from death. It doesn't mean that he wouldn't die. I don't want to die, Father. Save me from dying. That's not the problem. Dying's not the problem. It's being saved out of death. This is what he's praying about. To be saved out of death. About the resurrection. About the victory of the cross. He's beginning the intercession. Even now. And so he cried unto him that was able to save him from death. And was heard. Because of his godliness and his holiness. Heard as a priest. And so the resurrection is based on the intercession of Jesus Christ, on his obedience, on his suffering, on his submission to his Father. Well, these are important aspects, and I just point them out without going into detail on them. That's the second thing. He, he's made a fit great high priest because he had days of flesh on earth where he perfectly obeyed God and perfectly submitted to his Father and went the whole way to Calvary. And then lastly, very quickly, he's fit because he became resurrected and exalted and glorified at the right hand of God, sat down there and heard the solemn oath then and heard the declaration then, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Paul there is speaking of the glory. He had to be raised from the dead. He had to be saved out of death, from death, from the grave, from the tomb. And he was, he was raised from the tomb. And as we know, he ascended, he was glorified, he ascended to the heavens, and he sat down at the right hand of God. He heard Psalm 110. Paul knows Psalm 110. The same Lord who said to him, sit there, I'll make all your enemies your footstool. The same Lord who said that glorified him to be made a high priest. That's when it took place. He glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but the Father glorified him to be made a high priest at his own right hand. That's what he is now. He's not a priest on earth after the order of Aaron. He's a priest in the heavens at the right hand of God after the order of Melchizedek. Perfect saviour in being a perfect high priest in the glory. He's alive. He's living. He ever lives to make intercession for us as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so all of this is referring to his enthronement when he's glorified as a high priest. It didn't happen in the manger. It didn't happen in the Gethsemane. It didn't happen, as it were, on the cross. It's happening in the glory where he enjoys it now and is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto him to come to the Father. Now, of course, Christ was a priest on the cross and he was a priest in the manger too. And he was a priest in Gethsemane as he prays there in Gethsemane. But he wasn't glorified to be the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That took place after the resurrection. Today have I forgotten thee. 
the first begotten from the dead, as our pioneer, as the author of eternal salvation, as the one who goes before and who brings behind him all his saved and all his redeemed. And so, congregation, the only one who can save us is Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying. He is the only high priest that we dare go to. He's the only priest that we dare show ourselves to. He's the only priest that we can trust. There's nobody else fitted. There's nobody else in the heavens. There's nobody else in the glory. There's nobody else has heard this solemn oath out of priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There is absolutely no one else. Only Jesus. The king priest reigning in the heavens. Able to save them that come to God to the uttermost, the uttermost salvation, the eternal salvation, the great salvation, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The eternal high priest. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. That's the gospel. None other. So come to him. Trust him. Show yourself to this priest. Tell him of your sins. Tell him of your uncleanness. Tell him of your need of his eternal salvation. And he that believeth on him has everlasting life. So believe and trust in this perfect and fit high priest who sits in the glory To him be glory and all praise. Amen.